Hello friends, David Vos here. Oh boy, we have got some really interesting thoughts to talk about and scriptures to examine. And I am baffled as I usually seem to be at how lacking the world is in information. Especially information about the Bible, certain teachings and things that, you know, when I look back as a young person, being raised a Jehovah's Witness in that cult, you know, and, you know, I can understand that I wouldn't know a lot of these things because I was just a, a young man, maybe, you know, wasn't even, I was just a kid, right? And I was just gleaning what people told me. And, and the Bible's a big book. I wasn't familiar with that and all of history and lots of different things that I wasn't familiar with. So I wouldn't know. And that's why most people don't know. But what's odd is that we have this big book and we have these scholars that have been studying this book ever since it was written. They wrote huge books and documents and spent hours trying to understand this. I mean, Sir Isaac Newton spent a lot of time and he was brilliant maybe he just didn't have time to get into all these things or perhaps it wasn't time for these things to be revealed because once you see what we're going to talk about today and you get this explanation from the scriptures themselves and common sense it'll become so apparent you'll just understand but you'll have then wonder well why didn't we know this before this is so simple we could have just cross-referenced scriptures and we would have known this. But it's like nobody ever did this. I mean, certainly Jehovah's Witnesses cross-referenced a lot of scriptures and wrote many books. Ellen White and I don't know how many other individuals or, you know, Hal Lindsey or, or whoever. But no one seems to have ever been able to, like, really put any of this together. And this is baffling to me. But it's very important today and probably more important than it's ever been in the history of man, that we understand what it means that Jesus is coming on the clouds of heaven. Because we are, what the Bible says or describes is at the door. We are at the door right now. And I think that'll become very apparent as we go through these lessons. And I think it's becoming very apparent to a lot of my subscribers as we discuss these things world events and so forth. We know that Jesus is coming soon. But there are so many of these pernicious doctrines that have gone forth. The apostles warned us about. Very interesting how they specifically mentioned certain doctrines and teachings that the apostles thought were the most pernicious and they talked about it and warned us about it as if they knew, you know, what well, they had to have known, you know, that these would be the things that the devil would try to deceive us about. One of the most important things is that Jesus wouldn't be a literal person. That it was just some sort of, um, Jesus would be just like some myth or something, or he didn't really exist, or he didn't come in the flesh. There's so many people running around today that have begun to teach that Jesus didn't really exist, and he's not really coming back in person, to the earth, 
to receive us unto himself. And I think it's so important that we go through the verses and just find out for ourselves what the Bible actually teaches on this. Very personal, good friends of mine, people who I love, are starting to veer away from the helpful and healthy teachings of Scripture. And I don't know why that everybody seems to rather have some... It's like they're they're almost looking for some excuse not to believe that Jesus himself is coming back. And I don't... So then I don't know what it is that they're expecting. The end of the world, but no Jesus. Then what? You know, like, oh, well, it's going to be a paradise and... there. But Jesus isn't coming. But well, how about the apostles? We proved, I think, yesterday that, that they expected the prophets to return. Isn't it interesting that they were, like Elijah was prophesied to return. Jesus said, yeah, he actually is a person. And that's John the Baptist. And he is coming. That prophecy that says Elijah will come before the fear-inspiring day of the Lord. Jesus confirmed it will happen. And he explained that it's actually a person. And they expected Jeremiah or, or other prophets. And we talked about that yesterday. But for some reason, when it says that Jesus is going to come back and return to the world, people want to think that that doesn't mean he's actually coming back. So, what? let's start by just talking about what does it mean that Jesus is coming in the clouds of heaven. Now you'd think that somebody would have done by now. Somebody would have done some cross-references and found out what this word cloud refers to. Now, imagine in your mind, well, first of all, where this came from to start with. Jesus was ascending into heaven. That's a very strange sight if you think about it. We might have to even prove whether Jesus was even real the first time he came. Right? If he didn't actually come to the world the first time, then you might think, well, maybe he's not coming again. Well, we know that he came the first time because we have some verses of Scripture. I mean, as long as we believe in the Bible, right? And we, we trust the Bible, that it's the word of the divine being. Now, here are some, quickly, just a few little verses, because I don't want to get too deeply into this, because I think it's established clearly by several verses. And just common sense. Jesus partook of flesh and blood as did his brethren. Now, you could say, well, we don't believe that verse. And I don't even know what to say to something like that, except to say, if you've gotten rid of the Bible, if you don't believe in the Bible anymore, then what are you even talking about Christianity or Jesus or the apostles or anything for? Why even look at that book? You know, I mean, what's the point of studying this book and, you know, you say you're a Christian or whatever, and you're reading this book, that makes clear, obvious statements and you don't believe in them. We're not talking about a parable here. We're just saying that Jesus himself partook of flesh and blood. And it's not just like, well, there's just one little verse and we're not sure if it was literal. But this is the whole point. Jesus partook of flesh and blood because we partook of flesh and blood. As did his brethren, see? Now, why, why would anybody think then that, well when it says that Jesus partook of flesh and blood as his brethren, that even though we are flesh and blood, Jesus wasn't. 
right? Jesus wasn't flesh and blood. We are, but he wasn't. Or, or maybe I guess somebody could say, oh no, I don't believe that humans are flesh and blood. Well, see now how ridiculous this gets. You say, well, that's just one verse. Show me another one, and then I'll, maybe I'll believe. Give me two or three. Well, now hang on. First of all, what would ever make you think that Jesus didn't come in the flesh in the first place? Right? That there was no Jesus. If there really was no Jesus, then there was no cross. You see? Well, he didn't really die for your sins, Dave. That probably means some spiritual thing, you know, or whatever. Maybe, well, okay, how about the apostles? Did they exist? Did the Apostle Paul exist? Did John the Baptist exist? Historically, we have proven on this channel, I can't go back over today, Josephus and all the historians wrote about John the Baptist and the Essenes. Christianity is a historical fact. Where did he get started? From Paul? He invented it? Well, then he must have invented the apostles too. And he must have invented all these congregations that he was writing these pseudo letters to right so we got to invent everything history we've got maybe rome didn't exist now i know people that are running around saying maybe history didn't exist and we've only you know or maybe we're just missing a thousand years of history or maybe there wasn't any ancient greece or ancient rome or, or anything well i don't know maybe maybe there wasn't an atom maybe maybe we're just living in some sort of hologram that just got started this generation and we've all been downloaded all this historical information. And wow, this could get really entangled. Now, a lot of you say, yeah, but but we know that there's this Christ in us. It's like, you know, the Eastern teachings, that, that all is an illusion. And all we have to do is change our mind and have a higher consciousness. And that's what Christ is, is that higher consciousness. Okay, but... If we're going to have that higher consciousness, then we're going to live still, right? It's not, it's not, we're going to get higher consciousness and then we're not going to exist anymore, right? So we're still going to exist. And we all have fathers and mothers and brothers, right? Are we just all alone? If we have to try and prove on this video today that each of us listening to this video today are really people and that we are living in this flesh and blood yes it's an illusion but whatever it is it's the manifestation of our carnal thoughts that creates this carnal world upheld by the the dark elemental spirits of the demiurge yahweh all these lies and all these evil doubts and fears and stuff that make up this the power that the lust that holds this carnal evil world in place yes it's spiritual yes we we understand this esoteric stuff but by the same token, the heavenly kingdom is the true thought form of divine being, which is love, which is what he is. He's only good, he, kind and gentle, and he creates from his heart, and his heart is good and love, and it light, the firstborn of all creation. The universe was created by him for him and through him and he has many brethren who partook of flesh and blood and so he partook of flesh and blood so that he could come here to tell us of the father to tell us about the love to tell us to believe 
to encourage us to have faith and to tell us to reject this evil, this doubt, this lower egotistical anger, this jealousy, this fear. If Jesus didn't come to the earth and get nailed to a cross, then you're not saved. You say, well, that's all symbolic. He didn't really do that. He's talking about some kind of, a, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't even want to try and guess what that might symbolize for some people, right? I understand that people believe in this Christ in you. Paul talked about that. And that's not something that if you believe that, you can't believe that Jesus wasn't a real person. <clears throat> because we're all in Adam too. Who then is this person Christ that we're like? That we will never die like him. All these stories, all the historical writings talk about the apostles and things that they did and how Christianity began. Actually, Josephus mentions Jesus, right? But people just say, well, they probably wrote that in there after he died. So this is how they get around anything that's there. They just put doubts in your mind about all of it. You don't have to doubt it because there's too many witnesses. But anyway, let me just start and say that, because we only have so much time, I, I, I don't want to go and try to do this in depth on whether or not Jesus came to the earth literally. But I'll just give you a few verses. If you believe in the Bible and you trust the Bible and you know it's true, you just don't know how to take it, whether it's literal or spiritual or something or whatever, I understand. So let me just share with you a couple of verses. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with the divine, and the Word was divine. And we beheld His glory, that of the only begotten one, who was with the Father. And He became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? There's another verse that says that He partook of flesh, and He dwelt among us. And He had brethren. If you deny that, you deny everything else that follows. All of his teachings, his overcoming this world so that he could give us eternal life. And the Apostle Paul says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Isn't that true? But we have other scriptures. We have the verse that says that he was the firstborn among many brethren. So he partook of flesh and blood as did his brethren, and he was the firstborn among many brethren. And there is the verse that says he's the firstborn of all creation, that he was first in all things, that he overcame this world, that he died on a cross, that they nailed his hands to a, a stake. It gives us the whole account. He was judged by the Sanhedrin. They accused him of blasphemy. They condemned him to death. Then they handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate washed his hands of it. Pilate literally wrote a letter that we still have today explaining the whole thing. Talked about Jesus, how he uh, put him on trial and couldn't find anything wrong with him. And Pilate himself said, this surely must have been the Son of God. So this is an historical letter. Not just the Apostle Paul's epistles and Peter and James and John epistles that we have in history that we can date just maybe a couple hundred years after Christ. We know that people were passing these letters around all the way back about 2,000 years ago. This is historical. We have proof. But it isn't just these letters. 
There were many, many, many individuals who had these letters, different ones, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip. There were others that we don't even have in our Bible called the Nahamadi Library. We have the early church fathers that were just maybe a hundred years later. We have Ignatius and Polycarp, both of whom were disciples of the Apostle John. Marcion was the disciple of the Apostle Paul. And we have people even who, who say that, that not only did they know John, but they, they knew that John testified that he knew Jesus. So we know that these people existed. This is historical. And anybody who wants to just somehow believe that none of this is real, then I don't know whether or not you'll even want to watch this video anyway. But it's sad to me that there are actual Christians that say they believe in Jesus, but they don't really believe that he was real. So now what we want to discuss in this video is whether Jesus is coming again literally. And what does it mean he's coming in the clouds of heaven? Well, in order to understand what it means coming in the clouds of heaven, let me read you a couple of verses from the Old Testament because we need kind of a, um, a basis to understand what this word is used, how this word is used in um, prophecy, because we know that the Bible is very symbolic. Now, yes, Jesus might, could literally, I guess, come in a cloud, like this big cloud and Jesus is coming. But understand too that we also have determined that many of the things that the, that the New Testament says is both literal and symbolic. So for instance, it says that when Jesus comes, the stars will fall from heaven, the mountains shall, shall tumble down into the sea, and the sun won't give its light, the moon will be darkened before the coming of the Lord Jesus on the clouds of heaven. So if we understand the stars falling from heaven as some kind of symbolic, esoteric thing, and, and we can prove that, because first of all, the stars are way, way out there in outer space. They can't fall. Now, you could say that if the earth was to spin real quick, that all the stars might kind of blur and kind of whoop, you know, and it might look like they're, they're falling, or it could be talking about meteorites or something, right? But it says all the stars will fall from heaven and all the mountains shall fall. Well, I don't, if all the mountains are going to fall down and the sun won't give its light, I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing. I suppose one could imagine this is all literal, but it isn't. It's not literal. Now, yeah, the sun might be literally for some reason, maybe there'll be some smoke. It'll come up out of a volcanic occurrence or something it will darken the sky maybe you won't be able to see the sun maybe it'll be a big meteor shower then there will be a big volcano that'll just blow up and fall into the sea that will be literally and then maybe the uh uh the sun will turn into blood or it'll just look red well that's not literal the moon's not going to literally turn to blood right i mean i don't believe the the moon will literally be turned into blood I don't know of anybody who does. I don't think it means that the, the moon will be blood, but it'll be turned into a red color. So you see how it can be both literal and spiritual? So in other words, if I can show you that the clouds mean something, some esoteric meaning to the word coming on the clouds, that doesn't mean that he's not coming. 
that Jesus himself means something else. And we're going to show that Jesus doesn't mean something else. And we're going to show exactly what the clouds mean. So take a look at Numbers chapter 9, verse 17. It says, Whenever the cloud was lifted up from over the tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of Moses, afterward the sons of Israel would set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, that's where the sons of Israel would camp. They would set up their camp. And that's in Numbers 9.17. We have in Exodus chapter 13, somewhere around the verse 20, it says, By day Yahweh went ahead of them in a pillar of a cloud to guide them on their way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. All right, so here's a cloud that was hovering over Israel back in the days of Moses. What could that mean? Well, remember, Jehovah came with thick darkness and gloom, right? He was a scary storm deity. And so when the Bible says it's a cloud, if you really read the context, I don't want to go into all of those little verses because it would take us about 20 minutes. We don't have time, but if you really get into those at some point that the, the cloud was in front of them and then at another point it went behind them. And when it went behind them, it was between them and Pharaoh's army. And it says that the cloud sent the whole army of Pharaoh into tumult and wiped them out. Well, as you begin to read there, you begin to kind of get the picture that this cloud was a storm and the storm just caused havoc and caused Israel to be able to win and get away. And the storm would wreak havoc with Pharaoh's armies. It was also the storm that went ahead of them as they crossed the Red Sea. Some have said that storm may have whipped up this kind of hurricane force winds and caused the water to just kind of be pushed up like a bank because of this wind. But the one thing we get out of that is that it's some kind of storm. It's thick gloom. There's darkness. And Yahweh is a God of darkness. He makes darkness and light. He has curses and blessings. It says he is. He makes good and evil. Well, that's not our Heavenly Father who is only light and there is no darkness in him. He is love. That is who he is. And he doesn't take account of your sins and He's not partial and he loves everybody and he forgives everybody. But the Old Testament deity says he will not pardon your sins. And in his wrath, he said, you'll not enter into my rest. So these are two different deities. The Old Testament deity tempted us, like in the Garden of Eden, tempted Adam and Eve. But in the New Testament, it says that our Heavenly Father doesn't tempt any man, neither can he be tempted. So we have two different deities. If in the Old Testament we see this storm and a storm god, right, and it's following them and they're all in fear and panic and when they get to the mountain, the mountain's on fire, right, and there's this thick darkness and gloom and the cloud that, that, that envelops the sanctuary. Well, it says that the cloud hovered or covered, but that word just means engulfed. So the whole cloud was engulfing the mountain and... Maybe there was wind and fire. Well, I don't know. Was it lightning? Because, you know, there's a bit of 
trouble kind of determining whether fire means lightning or whether it means, you know, a glow from, you know, sometimes when you go into a storm, there seems to be like a weird glow, right? Maybe the moon is trying to shine through or the, or something. But whatever it was, it does kind of describe this mountain that's kind of thick and dark and stormy and scary. Lightning, talks about lightning. So as a kind of a parallel to that, we see in the book of Revelation, we see these seven thunders and these bowls of wrath and these trumpets, trumpet blasts. Well, in the days of Moses, they had these trumpets that were blowing. All the same kind of imagery. But the New Testament is taking some of these parables and using them in a different way. In other words, Yahweh had his judgments. And Jesus, the Lord Jesus, has his own judgments. Yahweh did things literally with a sword. Jesus has a sword out of his mouth. So, uh, just briefly, I'm just kind of briefly describing the difference there. But what I wanted to share with you was the fact that these lightnings and, and, and these thunders and these trumpets and all this stuff had to do with these the announcement of Jehovah's kingdom and the lightning in the New Testament being flashes of truth dispel the darkness well in the old testament they were they were judgments that were coming from jehovah to destroy the sinners the only difference is that jehovah wants to destroy people in his wrath he's jealous he's angry he hates people he doesn't want them to have eternal life and so he sends his judgments in the new testament jesus in the day that he comes to judge the world and he sends these flashes of lights and his bowls of wrath too but it's a spiritual judgment it's judgment upon the physical world, but a salvation for those in Christ, which is all of us. We're all in Christ. And in Christ, we'll all be made alive. And it's, so it's something very symbolic there. But going back to the Old Testament, where it's talking about this cloud, what we can determine, it is something like a storm cloud. It is not something really very symbolic, but yet it has symbolic characteristics. So in other words, it was a real cloud and they were really scared and there was a real mountain, Mount Sinai. Everybody believes that. And they had these actual Ten Commandments written on these tablets of stone. Whereas in the New Testament, it tells us that that's symbolic that the stone represents your stony heart. So this mountain of Jehovah represents his government and all these thorn clouds and everything basically represents gloom and darkness and the power. He has great power, Yahweh. But it's not a, a power to get rid of darkness. It's a power of darkness to try and get rid of the light. So it's kind of the opposite. So in Ze Zephaniah chapter 1, it says, verse 15, Near is the great day of Jehovah, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of Jehovah. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. So in Yahweh's world, or in his scriptures, it's literally a destruction of storms and earthquakes and terrible things. And it really does, it is a judgment from, from Yahweh. He sends plagues, he sends disease, 
But it's dark and it's gloomy and it's because you're a sinner and you broke his law. In the New Testament, we we see that Jesus is coming on these clouds too. Because clouds always mean there's a storm coming. Now, why would Jesus be bringing a storm? Well, when the world is coming to the to its end, it says the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming with thick clouds and gloom. It's it's talking about the approaching ominous trouble that's coming. We even use that today in our daily thinking and thought. We, when we talk about, oh, a storm is coming, and we don't always mean it's a real storm. Sometimes we're talking about a symbolic storm. And so in the New Testament, it's a symbolic storm. Even though there's going to be clouds involved, it's not just spiritual. There's also some literal aspects to it because this judgment that's coming on the world is going to have some storms. It's going to be some earthquakes. Okay? But primarily, it's referring to the great judgment. And Jesus is coming in the storm that's coming upon the world to judge the world. That's what that's talking about. And we'll see further how that how that applies. Joel chapter 2 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Now here's these trumpets, right? And at the Mount Sinai, Yahweh had these trumpets. But in the fulfillment of that, because that was a type and a shadow, there will be trumpets blown in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Now, if you're talking about Jehovah, it's a day of judgment upon all the sinners. Right? If you're talking about the coming of Jesus, it's a judgment upon the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, which is the devil. So, both of them are coming with a with their wrath. But Yahweh comes literally to kill us because he hates us. The Lord Jesus is coming because he loves us. And the storm and the trouble is not for us because as Christians there is no condemnation and we're not appointed under the wrath. But the world is appointed under this wrath because they wouldn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So Jesus is coming on this on this storm. He's going to be coming at that time. When you see the storm clouds coming, that's when Jesus is coming. Oh, let, let's see this further. Because it continues. It says, Surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to years of many generations. Now listen to this one. Exodus 30, verse 3. For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Dark will be the day at Tathanes, when I break the yoke of Egypt. There her proud strength will come to an end. She will be covered with clouds and her villages will go into captivity. See, are you starting to get the theme of what clouds may represent? The coming storm or the day of judgment. Exodus 34, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep, they have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So now here we have, during this thick darkness and clouds, we've got somebody coming to rescue the sheep. But look at what Isaiah 19 says. This is really interesting. It says, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. And he comes to Egypt 
The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Note that word presence. Not his coming, but his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians. And they will fight one against the other. Neighbor against neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. This is quoted by Jesus. He says, in that time, when I'm coming, just before I come on the clouds of heaven, Jesus said, there's going to be kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. And he describes a lot of trouble that we're going to be going through, this great tribulation. So, the clouds represent this great tribulation. And Jesus is coming and he is present. We know that he's coming they translate it, but it shouldn't be translated coming. It should be translated, he is coming to visit. Elsewhere, it's called the day of his visitation. He comes to bring judgment on the world. But when he's bringing judgment on the world, you'll find out here in a minute. We'll show you some scriptures. He's being glorified in his saints. And we'll see what that means here in a minute. Look at Psalms 18, 9 through 10. And this is actually about Jesus not about Jehovah. And it says, He also bowed the heavens down low and He came down with thick darkness under His feet. He rode on a cherub and He flew and He sped on the wings of the wind. Isn't that interesting? And look at what Daniel chapter 7 says, I kept on looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming. Oh, now we're getting very specific. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven is Jesus Christ. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all the peoples and nations and populations of all the earth might serve him. His dominion is an eternal dominion. It will never pass away and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. You're beginning to see kind of what the clouds of heaven really represent. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So be it. Amen. So, since the clouds may represent this storm, this trouble, this judgment, could it be then that Jesus isn't really going to come? That this is just all esoteric? It's just a time of trouble, but no Jesus? No, because it's Jesus that's controlling this as a judgment upon the world. It's not a willy-nilly storm. We'd never make it through that. We're going to have help. He's going to deliver us at this time. And how is he going to do that? Well, as it says, and we'll read all these verses, but he's coming to receive us unto himself. He comes down from the heavens. Now, We'll meet him in the air. So, how will all the world see him? In several ways, which we will explain here in just a moment. So, Mark 13 says this, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, 
from the end of the earth to the other end of heaven. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. As soon as its branch has become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you know when you see these things, he is near, he is at the door. Truly I say to you, the generation that sees this will not pass away until all these things take place. Hmm. I think we might have our answer about these clouds, but there's so much more we're going to cover here, guys. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10. For indeed you practice it toward all the brothers and the sisters who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel even more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we instructed you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not to be in need of anything. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind who have no hope. If you don't believe in Jesus, you've got no hope, friends. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, oh, but I don't believe that was literal, Dave. Well, then you're without hope. But we believe, pay careful attention, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, how could he have died if he didn't literally exist, right? See, this pernicious doctrine is taking away our own our salvation. They've denied the Lord that bought them, the Bible says. Please, friends, don't be deceived. He died and rose from the dead, so also the Divine One will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Now, if Jesus isn't coming back, He's not bringing back our loved ones who have died. So if you don't believe in the real Jesus, you don't, or, or the real coming of Jesus, His arrival, His second coming, then you really aren't, you have no foundation or, or belief in the resurrection. You don't even believe that you'll ever see your family again. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, Jesus himself, oh, but I don't believe in a, a literal second coming date. Well, then you don't believe in the Bible because the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of deity and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Oh, there's the clouds again. Yeah, evidently there's some storm brewing when we're being raised up. That's the end of the storm because we're coming back with him. So we go up, meet him in the air, and we come down because he's coming with, with, with the saints. And we'll, we'll explain what it means he's coming with the saints. And how we're going to meet him in the air. Because it's not, it doesn't mean what you might think. Remember, so some of this is kind of esoteric. Yes, he's really coming. But the word air, well, let me show you what that word air really means. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, starting with 1. And you hath he quickened, or made alive, 
who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time passed ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but the divine one who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us, made us alive. See, that's where this thing is, where we're going to meet the Lord, we'll be made alive, together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up, upward together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through the faith, not that of yourselves, it is the gift of the divine, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which the Lord Jesus hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, you see, the fact that we're made alive and we were being ruled over by the power of the air. And we see that that place there, the air, is ruled over by a spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, spirits, that word is a mind. It's some invisible power inside the body. That's what it is. That all the physical body is just an, uh, you know, a manifestation of mind. So, spirit is that invisible force. It's mind. And it's the demonic spirits that worketh in the children of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. So, that is that heavenly is within and it's not the most holy, right? We're not talking about going all the way to the throne of the Lord Almighty, but we're talking about not the earthly, but... So, now think of it this way. You've got the the earth, and then you've got the air, which is just above the earth, and above that's the heavens, the higher heavens. There, there are several layers. So, we're not talking about meeting him all the way in the center of the source of the universe, the throne that where everything centers around. We're talking about meeting him in the air, which is the next level, just above the flesh. It's called the astral. Okay, that's in esoteric wisdom. They consider that the astral. And the astral realm is where the demonic beings have taken up and set their thrones. But we're going to replace them. So it calls it heavenly places. We're going to sit on thrones in heavenly places. So there are several layers. And there will be thrones that will be set on by us in this realm where presently the devil and the prince of the power of the air is now operating. So we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And that is a spiritual place within this tabernacle of our body. It's a higher heightened, like you, we were saying, the mountains are heightened awareness. So we're going to be standing on Mount Zion. So we're closer to Jesus when he comes. In other words, we're already going to have a heightened state of awareness. And when he comes, we'll meet him there in the air. The amount of transfiguration will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So here up is really within. 
You see, that's where Jesus went. Jesus went to heaven and sprinkled his blood. Well, he went into our heart and he sprinkled his blood on our heart to atone for our conscience because our conscience is within us. He had to cleanse our heart because remember, this is the temple and the most holy is within you. So Jesus is coming from within you, from your source. Right? Now, we'll, we'll carry this theme out further here. We'll explain what this means. He's literally coming and every eye will see him. It's just that some of the way this is happening, we've got to, we've got to use these symbols to fully grasp. So we're going to meet them that have already raised up and he's bringing them with him. And we're going to be on the earth because those who remain, we're still going to be here. That's the elect, 144,000. We're going to raise up and meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with him. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So you see, we're going to always be with the Lord. We're never going to go back to this carnal world. We'll never come back here and set up a kingdom in this finite, carnal, evil world. We're going to ever be with the Lord. When the Lord partook of flesh, he entered into the devil's kingdom. This is the kingdom of, of the devil, the deity that blinds the minds of the unbelievers. And he's got his laws. And Jesus said, my king's no part of this world. So when he entered into this world, he went into enemy territory. And he was under the rules of this world. And the God of this world is going to put us to death. But Jesus came here and, came here and overcame this devil, in order to tell us that he was going to come and deliver us if we would just trust him and believe in him, that he would return at the last moment, at the harvest, and his angels will be the reapers, and they'll take all those who are in this world who want to leave and go with him, and he'll receive us unto himself. And this is the good news of the gospel. So, take a look at Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And start with verse 5. He taught, he's already saying that Christians have been persecuted and Jesus is coming. So he says in verse 5, Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of the divine, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of the divine, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing for the divine one to recompense tribulation to them that are troubling you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not the divine and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting or age lasting. Uh, that word, they translate destruction in some of these translations. Keep in mind that they used to translate that to perish or to be lost. The presence of the Lord from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified, now get this, in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. But notice that, that Jesus is going to be glorified in his saints. And if you look at that word in the Greek, that word in really does mean in, not with or by his saints, but in us. Now, how is the world going to see the glory of the Lord in us? 
You see, I don't think people realize what that what that means, and we'll show you here in a second. And then if you go down a couple verses in verse 12, it says, And the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in him, according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's a little bit like that verse in John, where it says, I and the Father are one. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And ye are in me, as I am in the Father, and we are all one. What does it mean to be in the Father? What does it mean when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? What does it mean when Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have the Father also? You see, but if you don't have the Son, you, you don't have the Father. So many people believe in what they believe is the Father or Yahweh, but he doesn't have a Son who loves us. See, that's the deity of this world, the beneath, that's blinding the minds of the unbelievers. So if you don't have... Jesus, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you don't believe in his father. Jesus kept saying, I came from my father. And they said, well, who is your father? He said, my father is above. Your father is beneath. He is of this world, but I am no part of this world. So we're not going to have a kingdom in this finite, material, carnal world. We're going to have a glorified body. We're going to have a glorified kingdom. And his name is going to be glorified in us. So that means that the world is going to see Jesus in a little bit different way than we're going to see him. Now, I know that sounds a little odd, but let me show you. Look what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of the divine. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Kind of the same thing, you know, you know me, you know the Father, you know. This is some sort of esoteric message here. Try to grasp this. Beloved, now are we the sons of the divine, and it doth not yet appear what we'll, we'll be like. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, how is it see him as he is? We. He's not talking about the world. Because, you see, they're not going to be glorified. So they will not see him in his glorified body. Because we will see him in the glorified body. Because we'll be able to see spiritual glorified beings. So we'll be able to see him and know him. And we will be like him ourselves. See, we're going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye. We're going to put on immortality. Now, when we're immortal beings, these finite, carnal, bestial individuals in this world cannot see us anymore. They will see the Lord in us during this period of time called the parousia, which we'll talk about here in just a second. So, the people that are carnal and have not receive the testimony of the Lord, they will see Christ coming on the clouds of heaven. They see the brightness of his coming. They see the storm clouds. They see the judgment. And they're fearful. And they say to the rocks and the hills, fall over on us. Hide us from the one who is coming. So they see that. But we, the saints, when he appears, we'll see him as he is. 
because we will be like him. But they won't be like him. They'll only see him coming in the brightness and this flame of fire to take vengeance upon the world. We will see his glory. And we will be in the glory. We'll be taken up into the glory. But the world will see the glory of Christ in us. But the brightness of his coming isn't the brightness of his coming. It's mistranslated. It's the brightness of his presence. And as we've seen, he'll be present in his saints. Does that mean he doesn't come? No, because when we see him, we'll be like him. So if they're going to see the presence of the Lord Jesus in us, then they're going to literally be seeing Jesus in us. But if Jesus doesn't exist and he didn't come at his appearing, then we will not see him and be like him. Because look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It says in the King James Bible, And then shall the wicked, or some translation says the wicked one, but it's the wicked too, because the wicked one is one with all the other wickedness. They have their own nature. They are the worldly. They are See, the world will become one with the beast by worshipping it. And they'll all get the mark upon their right hand or forehead. And that beast is that carnal nature. And so they literally are living in a system, a beastly carnal government, the earthly nature. And that earthly nature must be revealed. And how will it be revealed, this beast, the world? Well, this way. Then the wicked shall be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So every eye will see. Those who get to go with the Lord will see him as he is. And he will be a real person. And he will receive us unto himself. And we'll be with him forever. But the rest of the world see him coming on the clouds of heaven, the storm clouds. And this fiery flame, he comes as a flame of fire to consume them. You see, by the spirit of his mouth, the brightness of his coming. No, he's not coming with a literal sword to kill people. He's coming as truth, as the reality. And the reality will swallow up the illusion. And all those who hang on to the delusion... There is a plan for them. And they will go to that place that Christians have talked about for a long time called hell. Although they don't know what hell is. And we'll describe what it is. It's a place of judgment. It's this carnal world where the worm doth not die. It's an eternal realm. It's this physical eternal realm that's constantly being consumed by fire, purging and suffering. That's what that means. And the worm that doth not die is the worm, it's the worm that eats the flesh and therefore it's eternal corruptible flesh they're not immortal so they'll be brought back in a resurrection to judgment and so Christ is coming both with a light as bright and as a flame of fire to consume the carnal physical nature but when that carnal nature is consumed it's described in the Bible like gold or silver. You throw it into the fire and it purges it and the dross comes off and you throw that away and what you've got left is the precious silver or gold, which is your soul. So now, we talked about this word parousia. 
And we've said that it means presence, not coming. Well, let's show that. Greek, parousia, 3952. And it says, definition, a presence, a coming. And in usage, it's presence. Many times they translated presence, like when it's talking about the presence of Timothy in the congregation or, or Paul or somebody. But a lot of the times when it's, when they're talking about the presence of the Lord Jesus, they, they switch it to coming. The wrong tense. It's, it refers to, and we'll see this here in a second, it refers to an emperor or king who is visiting his, his people. So it's a visit. It's his presence. It's like a tour. You know, he comes and, and shakes everybody's hands and he gets to know them. It's his visit. It's his presence. So Jesus is coming in a presence upon this world. And when he's present here, he'll be present in his people. His glory will be in his people. Because remember, Jesus is exalted and spiritual. He doesn't have his physical body. So he's not going to be reincarnated on earth as a man and Jesus is going to be walking around. Jesus is real and he's coming to receive us unto himself. And when we are raised up and meet him in the air, we'll see him. We'll, we'll know him. He'll, he's real. And we'll be like him. But the world will see him in us. The glory that is in us, they will see and they'll experience the brightness of his coming. And since they're holding on to this darkness, they'll be consumed by this brightness. This delusion will just melt away. And they will get the fire because he's going to come. Now, when a king comes to his subjects and he rewards those people that he cares about and he appoints certain people to certain offices or whatever he does. And one of the things the king will do is he'll take all the evil people of his kingdom that are that are uh, causing havoc and trouble and he has them apprehended and he puts them in jail or he puts them to death. And so Jesus is coming to set matters straight. So... 3952 parousia from Peron to be present. So it's properly coming, especially the arrival of the owner who alone can deal with the situation. This is what Strong says. Technical term with reference to the visit of a king or some other official, a royal visit. Hence, in the New Testament, specifically of the parousia of Christ or his presence. So, Parousia is used in the East as a technical expression for the royal visit of a king or an emperor. The word means literally being beside, thus a personal presence. So it, it doesn't mean like Jesus isn't here. Oh, and, and he's coming. Oh, there he is. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. You'll see him, you know, just sitting up there coming down out of the clouds. No, what you'll see is his parousia. So now let's read a couple of verses to get this in context. Look at Matthew 24, verse 3. I'm going to read it literally from the Greek. It says, As was sitting now he, upon the Mount of Olives, came to him the disciples in private, saying, Tell us when the things will be, and what is the sign of your presence, your visit. And the consummation of the age. Look at 
Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 In order to strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before the Divine One and the Father of us at the parousia, the presence of the Lord of us, Jesus, with all the saints. Okay, now think about this. We read already before, he's going to be glorified in the saints. But we read the scripture over and over again that he's coming with his saints. But now, do we see that the word presence is there? How is the Lord Jesus going to be present? We've all heard the scripture that he knocks. He stands at the door and he knocks. And he says, open, and I shall come in unto thee and have supper. Communion. So, the presence of the Lord is in us. And so it will be the brightness of his presence in us. And to be glorified in his saints. And that's what it says here. In order to strengthen your hearts in blameless and holiness before the divine one and father of us at the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. So it's with the saints that there is this presence. Now, take a look at this very important here. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Himself now, the divine one of peace, may sanctify you completely and entirely your spirit and soul and body blameless in the presence, not at the presence. The word is in, in Greek. In the presence of the Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. So, it is this divine being of peace that will sanctify you completely and entirely, your spirit and your soul and your body, blameless in the parousia. Isn't that beautiful? Here we have 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which says, We implore now you brothers... By the parousia of the Lord. So it's by the parousia that the Lord of us, Jesus Christ, and our gathering together unto him. So we're gathered together unto him. Not by the, the presence, but over the presence of the Lord, we're going to be gathered together unto him. Now, here's a verse in the book of James. Now, for those of you who think, I mean, we were talking about that particular person that, that doesn't believe in so many of the verses in the Bible because they don't believe in Paul. And they think Paul and James didn't like each other and stuff like this. Well, here's the book of James. And we were just reading verses from Paul. Now, listen how James teaches the exact, exact same teaching. And James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until... The parousia of the Lord. Behold, the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the earth. He is patient for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. Now think about that. The early and the latter rain. We all know that's talking about the Holy Spirit as the early rain and the latter rain. And we're due to receive the latter rain. That's the Holy Spirit. And so we're, we're waiting patiently for it. Okay, so what then is the parousia or the coming of the Lord? That's translated coming, but means parousia. It means 
He's going to be present in us. He'll be glorified in us by the Holy Spirit that will be poured out upon us. And we're waiting for that glory to be revealed, that pouring out of the latter rain. Right? So that gives us a little bit more of an understanding of what this parousia really is. It's His Spirit. But it also, for anyone who really has eyes to see, shows that all of the apostles were completely on the same page. They used the exact same words, parousia, the same terminology and the same doctrines. They used the same teachings or, or phraseologies like Christ our Savior who is divine. You know, they, they called them all the same words. They never missed a beat. They were in complete harmony. Here's uh, the Apostle Peter in, in 2 Peter 3 verse 4. Um, using the same terminology and talking about this parousia of Christ that he says, well, in verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of the parousia of him? From the time that our forefathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So you see, Peter is basically saying that there will be many who will not be ready when this presence comes. Because they don't have faith and he will not be glorified in them. So they'll only see this brightness coming and they'll hide from it. They'll run and go into the holes in the dens of the rocks saying, fall on us. Who can, who is able to stand? I mean, Jesus is coming and they're scared out of their minds. Again, I want to show you the testimony of the apostle Peter that Jesus is real. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the presence of the Lord has power. It's His presence will dispel all the illusion and the delusion. And so he's saying, this isn't a fable that we, we're telling you. Because we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received from the divine Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard it when we were with him in the holy mountain. Do you think Peter is just lying? Did Peter really go to the holy mountain? Did he really see the transfiguration of Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah? Or was he just making up fables? Well, if you believe in the testimony of Peter, you'll believe in the power of the presence of Jesus in your life and how he will be present in us in glory and all the world will see that he will be glorified in us. And yes, they will see him too because everyone, every eye will see. He will come as the sun that shall come up in the east and shine all the way into the west. So they're going to see the brightness of his coming and every eye will see it and they'll know who it is and they'll run in panic. Now look at the Apostle John. Again, complete harmony with Peter and Paul. And he says in verse 28, 1 John 2, 28, And now little children, abide in him. You know, sometimes we read this over and over again. We just kind of go numb and we just like in him. It's like we've heard that a hundred times. We don't know what it means. We're going to abide in Him. 
that when he shall appear, yes, he's going to appear. Remember what that other verse said, we'll be like him when he appears. Well, this says, we're going to abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his parousia. So what does it mean ashamed? You see, if you have truth and you abide in him now, then when he comes, you'll not turn away. You will not be ashamed. You'll embrace that light because the light will be in you. But if you have shunned the light, if you have beat your fellow servants, if you have not yet received that covenant, but you're still holding on to this vengeance and this jealous deity and the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth and you want justice, then you won't recognize him. And your conscience will say, you know, you're not even worthy because you'll, you'll see what love is and you'll never have even known what love is because you never received his love that you might be saved. You haven't received the truth, the love of the truth. So this is why he says we'll, we'll not be ashamed before his coming. So here, this explains a lot. All we have to do to go with the Lord is to be in him now. And, and, and how do we do that? Well, it, the, this apostle, apostle John tells us this. He says, we must remain in the vine and hereby we know we are in him if we love one another. And what is love? Well, he explains that too. If you see your brother hungry, you feed him. If he's naked, you clothe him. If he's sick, you heal him. That's what love is. And if you don't do that, if you see your brother naked and, and hungry and you don't help him and you say you have love, he says, you're a liar. And so this is how we are in him and we will abide in him so that when he appears, we will not be ashamed by his presence because his presence will be a great bright light. Yes, he's real. We will see him when he appears. The world will not see him as he is because they will not be changed with us. But understand, everyone will eventually be changed because eventually all death will be brought to nothing. And Jesus is going to rule over the world for a thousand years and bring everything into subjection to Christ so that everyone will be saved in Christ, but each in his own rank. But when he comes, there will still be this 1,000 years and the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the 1,000 years was ended. So there will be a number of people, we don't know the number, perhaps there will be many, that will be ashamed when he arrives and will hide into the caves and the dens of the rocks and fall on us and hide us from the presence of the one who is coming. We can't withstand this brightness. We only know darkness. We only know this old covenant of eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. This is why it's so important that we receive the covenant that Jesus gave us, the covenant of his love. And now back over to Peter, because I want you to understand how this these apostles work so well together and they all had the same message and they all testified and we must receive their testimony. It's imperative that we do. Please, friends, Please pray about this and listen carefully and read your Bible. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved. What does it mean, dissolved? Well, remember he says, 
the earth will be burned up. Why? Because he's coming in a flame of fire. His brightness, which is truth. And the truth will burn up these elemental spirits that will melt with fervent heat. This is what Peter is saying. And they're all going to be dissolved. So what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the presence of the day of the divine one, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elemental spirits shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. See, so many people don't want a new heavens and a new earth. They're happy to be in this old, degraded, evil world. They're living it up. They're, they're on their high horse. They've been rewarded. They got treasures on earth. They got gold and riches and power and gold-plated toilet seats. And they want to bring back an economy. More jobs, jobs, jobs. And, uh, yeah. More biotechnology and warp speed will do it, right? No. Because all of that is going to be consumed and dissolved. So, dear friends, what manner of persons ought we to be? This is what Peter is saying. In order that we might be certain that when that time comes, we will not be ashamed before him. So important, friends, that we begin to prepare and get on our knees and pray to the Lord and seek him with all of our heart and soul and mind. It means our lives, our children's, our, our families, our parents. It's life itself. It means all joy and happiness and everything that we'll, that we'll, we'll receive. We, when, he, when he returns, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. Because he's coming to receive us into himself. Well, anyway, guys, I'm well over an hour today. I went way over. Um, gotta go. May the Lord bless you. We'll see you tomorrow, guys.